Hello and welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this episode, I will look at The Alchemist uh, by, by Lovecraft. Uh, the Alchemist was written in 1908, um, but was not published until 1916 in uh, a magazine called The United Amateur. Um, so this was written when he was 17 or 18 years old. So this is a mature work. It's not like the stuff we looked at last time, Juvenalia. Um, of those stories, uh, I only think The Beast in the Cave is really worth your time to really dig into. It does have a lot of Lovecraft's theme, especially on, on isolation and descent and how isolation creates descent. And these are themes that are picked up in The Alchemist as well, but The Alchemist there's a lot more going on here, and this is going to take a little bit of time to to work our way through. Um, so, like so many of Lovecraft's stories, it's a story of ancestry and legacy, and uh, and that's a theme you're going to see it in the rats on the wall. It's in the lurking fear, and and stories like that at the mountains of madness has it. Um, uh, thing at the doorstep. A lot of others um, deal with ancestry and, and legacy and genetics and things like that. Now, this doesn't deal with genetics in the same way that like Rats in the Wall does. It's a story of, of, of paying the consequence for old sins, though. So in that sense, it, it's comparable. Um, the story, the narrator of the story is Comte, which is Count Antoine de C. So I'll just call him either Antoine or, or probably I'll just call him Anton throughout this episode because there's other counts, because we are going to be looking at the history of this family. And so, um, but he is part of a long and distinguished family that traces its roots back to the Middle Ages, and it's since fallen into decay due to a curse placed upon the family by an alchemist of the name of Charles Le Sorcier, or just Charles the Sorcerer. Um, now, as the story opens, we are introduced to one of Lovecraft's interests something that if you read a lot of Lovecraft you see a lot if you read his letters you see a lot of this as well and that is architecture so we're given a fairly detailed description of a castle in decay and it's quite quite well done and quite striking and his juvenilia doesn't have that same it doesn't have any like descriptions of architecture but by this time you can see he has uh, quite a, a keen eye for for architecture and as we'll see when we look at his letters in particular that he often shared this knowledge with many of his friends and what he's describing here is, a, is an old castle a castle that for centuries has been uh, the family estate now our na narrator um, Antoine is is alone with his servant Pierre and they just live in one part of the castle which the rest of it has has um, totally fallen into disgrace into poverty um, a nice gothic setting Quote, uh, but since these glorious times, all has changed. A poverty but little above the level of dire want, together with a pride of name that forbids its alleviation by the pursuits of commercial life, have prevented the scions of our line from maintaining their estates in pristine splendor, end quote. That's a really interesting um, uh, shout out there to kind of the conservative French clergy who, unlike like the British arist aristocracy, try to move into commercial lives as like their the as land no longer became the primary driver of wealth you know they still had the land of course they were still a landed aristocracy but increasingly as they started moving into commerce 
And that is often, that's kind of tied up into the history of capitalism there. The French aristocracy kind of notoriously was, was disinterested in those things. And that's certainly the case of Antoine's family here. So they, they, they have the land, they have the castle, they have the name, but they're not, they're really throwbacks to an earlier time. Um, to, to the feudal age. So they're stuck in a feudal mindset. And um, yeah, it's just, there's kind of a, I don't know how much uh, Lovecraft knew about the, you know, the French aristocracy itself, but at least this family is presented as not being open to, to the progress, maybe uh, the way others are. I don't think we got a firm setting for this story. I'm you know, except it's no, we, we no, we are because the curse is originally leveled in the 13th century, and we're t we're given a date of 600 years since then. So we're in the we're in the somewhere in the 19th, early 20th century. So this is a a contemporary story, it seems. All right, moving on. Um, so we're told that each of the Comte's family, each of Antoine's family members or ancestors, died at the age of 32, which leaves only him and a servant to live in one small part of this sprawling and decaying castle that simply can't be maintained. The incomes just aren't there to maintain this, ca this castle anymore. Now, class is at the forefront of this story. This is a story of class in many, many ways. Uh, now, uh, Antoine, raised in a tower, isolated from the rest of society, he learns to have nothing but contempt for the people outside the walls. Now, the true reason he's taught to have this hatred for the outside world is the rumors. The rumors that are out there revealing to, or they're capable of revealing to Anton the truth about this curse that's been leveled on the family. This curse that means that no one will live past the age of, of 32. But it does have a real impact on his view of the world. And he actually describes this family and ancestry at one point in the story as a race, right? And I think we should take this, this word to mean what it, it, how it's stated, that Anton sees himself, sees his family as a separate race from that of the peasant class around him. Um, now, it is explained that He's been taught to not interact with the peasants because the peasants know things. Another very, very strong Lovecraftian theme, something I'm going to come back to a lot in this series, is the is working class networks of power, of knowledge. Right? We, I, I think your typical casual Lovecraftian fan, and pretty much anyone who's probably listening to this, has this kind of image of the, the weird scholar usually a young man, kind of digging into old books, digging into the occult, and finding out some knowledge, right? It's like you get to copy the Necronomicon and you read it, but you shouldn't, right? And that, that, that kind of, that, that's even in this story, that, that trope. But it's in a lot of others. Uh, of, a lot of other stories have that, that, that trope in it. But there's another aspect to knowledge. There's like a separate side to this knowledge question, and that is vernacular knowledge. Um, the vernacular knowledge that carries on the cult of Cthulhu, for instance, you know, that's in that if you've read the cult of Cthulhu, um, I'll say more about this when we get to that story. But you have those mulatto cultists in New Orleans who have this knowledge of the Cthulhu cult. You have Pacific Islanders that seem to know about it. You have Eskimos that seem to know about it. And there's some kind of network of knowledge that connects these different working class communities together into 
kind of devi- it's like it's like a deviant knowledge. It's a forbidden knowledge, but it's not in books. It's it's kind of carried on word of mouth. It's more vernacular, and that is expressed here very clearly in this theme of through the theme of class, right? The peasants they get their knowledge through word of mouth, through tradition, through through oral oral kind of histories. Antoine has to find out his past through the written word. He has to go to the books. He has to go to these texts. So anyways, Antoine's isolated. His, his father's dead. All his ancestors are dead. His whole family's died. Everyone dies at the age of 32. Um, so he starts to dig into ancient knowledge himself. So right, it's like pretty much paragraph pipe. The nestled between these two paragraphs are these two different theses about knowledge. One is an act of lived knowledge among the peasants. And another is this dead knowledge in these books that Antoine has to kind of dig into and, 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 and extract. And he becomes particularly interested in the occult. And there's an interesting kind of back and forth that Antoine goes through throughout the story between like the natural and the occult. And, and you know, where's the true explanation for whatever's happening to him and his family? His digging into these books, though, teaches him little about the origin of the curse afflicting his family. However, when he turns 21, his servant Pierre gives him a document, and this document sort of tells him the entire story. So it's it's kind of a, it's it's like the record that gets passed on, uh, generation to generation, revealing this story. And I think we see this in another story of Lovecraft's. I'm, I'm can't quite remember which one it is. It might be Rats on the Wall that has that same device of a, of a document that kind of gets passed on generation to generation, uh, creating that connection. Or it may have been this story. I was just, you know, f- forgot that I that I read it here. But anyways, I, I thought I saw it before. Anyways, um, so the story is this. Back in the 13th century, one of Antoine's ancestors faced a peasant wizard named Michel of Mauvais, basically Michel the Evil, Michael the Evil is his name. And that's kind of his vernacular name. And he's just a, he's just a peasant wizard. Uh, now, his most evil crime was sacrificing his wife to the devil in the search of an occult knowledge, such as, you know, you know, looking for the Philosopher's Stone. Right. But he also stole peasant children. Now, this seems to be a very direct hint towards the anti-Semitic blood libel, which have its roots in the Middle Ages, has its roots right in this time period that this story is set in the in the 13th, or this backdrop to the story in the 13th century. Now, the blood libel is, you know, it, it it's an old anti-Semitic trope in Europe. It goes back to the Middle Ages, and it carried on into the 20th century. It, it, it remained live and well in 20th century um, anti-Semitism. I'm sure there's people who still hold to it now. Basically, the idea was that Jewish people stole children, Christian children, to use in various uh, rituals, um, you know, essentially kind of devil worship of a sort. So this was one of the major stories that drove anti-Semitic thinking in the Middle Ages and into the modern Europe, into, into modern Europe. And it never quite go, goes away fully. Um, and it seems now we're not clearly told that Michel Mauvais and Charles Le Sorcier, his son, are Jews, but they're definitely um, this hint of the blood libel is, is suggested here. Um, but 
you know, whatever. Let me know what you think about that. Uh, okay, alchemy. Um, of course, they're alchemists. The story is called The Alchemist. Now, the major idea of alchemy is... I haven't really researched it that much. I've researched it a little bit, but... Uh, you know, my understanding is that the basic idea of alchemy is that matter exists around us in some kind of degraded form. Um, and maybe this comes from platonic ideas. I don't know, like how we're all like all all matter is a imperfect, imperfect shadow of the forms. But the alchemists believe that 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 this fallen nature could be restored into some more perfect state. Right. And that kind of all nature is at some level the same. That's why you can transform things, whether take a degraded human form and revive it and create the elixir of youth, or as more, more, most commonly known, taking base metals and transforming them into gold, right? If things are just interchangeable reflections of some universal truth, then yes, of course you can transmute metals if you can harness that, that philosopher's stone, right? That, that bit of knowledge that can transform things so alchemy you know they're really the transmutation of metals and the elixir of life are two aspects of the same quest the same kind of search for knowledge alchemy promised to end the very state of decay that this family is facing right so it's interesting that you know we have a family in decay and we have an alchemist who essentially can live forever thanks to the philosophers uh, or thanks to the elixir of life is unlocking of that and, you know, it's kind of both are, you know, the, it's the peasants, it's the, it's the exiled sorcerers, it's those, it's the vernacular knowledge that actually achieved the defense against decay, not uh, those old stuffy books. So uh, you kind of have the two sides of the decay question played with here. Um, and alchemy is, of course, the solution to decay. Now, Lovecraft in this story combines various forms of occult knowledge in the character of, of Michel Mouvai. He's clearly an alchemist, but he's also engaged in devil worship. So it's, you know, it's a bit of both. Now, my, I don't think alchemists are generally seen as devil worshippers, um, but here they're combined together. You know, kind of just as two different sides, two different sides of vernacular occult knowledge. Now, one day, this is still the backstory. This is still the backstory that Antoine is getting from this document from Pierre. Now, one day, the son of the count vanishes, vanished, leading then Count Henry, who was the first count to face this curse, to seek out Michel, uh, Michel Mouvai, uh, Michel the, the evil. He eventually finds him in a village performing uh, a ritual. Henri kills Michel, saves his son, but left Michel's son, Charles Le Sorcier, who carries on all this knowledge from his father, uh, but leaves him alive. Um, now, he eventually confronts Michel, curses him, and curses the Count's family, and, and kind of begins this curse of saying, none of you shall be allowed to live longer than, than you. Now, not long later, Henri, Henri dies at the age of 32. And then Charles Le Sorcier vanishes into the woods and is kind of never seen from again. Now, as we can expect in a Lovecraft story, and as I talked about in The Beast of the Cave, my analysis of The Beast in the Cave, Lovecraft likes to explore the theme of forgetting. 
Um, the family of the count gradually loses the memory of the curse. You know, although no descendant of Henri lives past the age of 32, they all seem to die at 32. It, it's still, they forget it. But who does remember? Who does remember? It's the peasants. And that is why the family begins to close themselves off, to not be exposed to this truth. It's a really kind of self-inflicted ignorance. I guess there is that note that's being passed around generation to generation, but Pierre has it. And, you know, maybe he's just holding on to it and, and hands it to Anton, for, you know, because he wants Anton to know this. Um, you know, it's not, it doesn't seem to be that the family itself is carrying on this knowledge. So the only people who really have this truth are the peasants and then Pierre the servant seems to have it too. So there's, again, a class dimension to knowledge. Um, it's not the educated who really know the truth of the world. It, it seems to be, and for Lovecraft, often it's the, the working class, the marginalized, the sailors who travel around um, that, that, that create these networks of knowledge. That's how I'm really thinking about it, these networks of knowledge. And we're going to see this a lot in these, in these stories. So every member of the Count's line died at the age of 32. So we get a little bit of history here. Generally naturalistic causes. One died by being drowned, another a stray arrow. One died more mysteriously, but there's nothing apparently supernatural about people dying, especially you know, in the Middle Ages. Um, it's just the coincidence of the timing. Nevertheless, this, this curse seems to be forgotten by Anton's um, family over time. Now with this knowledge though, with this note, from Pierre, Anton begins to value his life more. He expects to only live 11 more years and he starts to live life to the fullest he can, basically trapped into a, in a, in a tower. But he spends his time digging deeper into his family history and he starts searching for naturalistic explanations for the death of his ancestors, maybe to give himself some security, some faith that he will not have the same fate. But he waffles between naturalistic and the supernatural and the occult explanations for his family history. And I think that's a really fascinating uh, section of the, of the text where we see he really can't make up his mind about this. Quote, In unusually rational moments, I would even go so far as to seek a natural explanation, attributing the early deaths of my ancestor to the sinister Charles Le Sorcier and his heirs. Yet having found upon careful inquiry that there were no known descendants of the alchemist, I would fall back to occult studies and once more endeavor to find a spell that would release my house from its terrible burden. Upon one thing I was absolutely resolved. I should never wed, for since no other branch of my family were in existence, I might thus end the curse with myself. Now, without getting too much into Lovecraft's family and personal history, uh, he, by this time, by the time he wrote this story, there's kind of a curse on Lovecraft's own family that he's dealing with and facing the reality of and it's hard not to think that he of course Lovecraft does marry he, he in, a, in a different world he, he could have had kids um, had his marriage lasted longer but as a as a 19 year old or no sorry a 17 year old he might be thinking you know maybe it's best I end this family line too to keep this curse from going on now what is the nature of this curse in Lovecraft's own life well, let's just jump to Wikipedia and um, see what it says. So Winfield Scott Lovecraft was his um, father. So in April 1893, after a psychotic episode in a Chicago hotel, Winfield
Winfield was committed to Butler Hospital in Providence. Though it's not clear who reported Winfield's prior behavior to the hospital, medical writers indicate that he had been doing and saying strange things at times for a year before his commitment. Winfield spent five years in Butler before dying in 1998. His death certificate listed the cause of death as general paresis, a term synonymous with late-stage syphilis. Throughout his life, Lovecraft maintained that his father fell into a paralytic state due to insomnia and being overworked, and remained that way until his death. It is unknown whether Lovecraft was simply kept ignorant of his father's illness, or whether his later remarks were intentionally misleading. So there we have it. There's a bit of a curse in Lovecraft's own own family through his his father. Okay. Um, yeah. When moving on with the story, uh, when Antoine turns thirty, Pierre dies, leaves this young man alone in the castle, and he decides then to start to explore the entirety of the old old castle and dig into his family's past that way. Antoine, quite courageously here, says he wants to face his death with courage and energy and not just passively wait for his 32nd year. So we get a very, very nice description of the exploration of the depths of the castle. And eventually he comes to a, a quote, gothic doorway and he meets a man there. And this en encounter creates some of these undescribable fears in the narrator. This is another kind of Lovecraftian trope is the undescribable terror. Um, you know, sometimes it's monsters, often it's just a feeling or a sentiment or a fear. Um, quote, without warning, I heard a heavy door behind me creak slowly upon its rusted hinges. My immediate sensations are incapable of analysis. To be confronted in a place as surly deserted, as I had deemed the old castle with evidence of the presence of a man or spirit, produced in my brain a horror of the most acute description. Um, so that's how he describes it there. And then we get a description of this man that he does indeed run into. Um, quote, his long hair and flowing beard were of a terrible and intense black hue and of incredible profusion. His forehead's high behind the unusual dimensions, his cheeks deep sunken and heavily lined with wrinkles, and his hands long, claw-like and gnarled were of such a deathly marble-like whiteness as I have never seen elsewhere in a man. His figure, lean to the proportions of a skeleton, were strangely bent and almost lost within the voluminous folds of his peculiar garment. But strangest of all were his eyes, twin caves of abysmal blackness, profound in expression of understanding, yet inhuman in degree of wickedness, end quote. So we have sort of like in the beast in the cave, uh, a creature who's apparently been stuck underground. Although, as we see later on, he's not trapped. There's a way out. So, And I assumed he had to go out to get stuff occasionally but you know spoiler alert this is charles le sorcier um the narrator takes a while to figure this out in fact he never figures that out on his own so he's a bit dense uh, reading this again i was struck by just how obvious it is i mean it's like the solution is right there in front of you i mean there's a point where this man talks about alchemy and the elixir of life and the narrator says oh yeah the elixir of life lets you live forever and then the next paragraph's like, I still can't figure out who this guy is and why he's fulfilling this curse, a 600-year-old curse. But anyways, um, leaving aside the, the denseness, the density of this um, uh, narrator's perception, um, let's go on with the story. So we got the description of the man. Um, he speaks in a form of debased Latin, as if he's from the Middle Ages. Now, as we know, Charles Le Sorcier has a peasant background, um, but he's educated via his father. So that's um, 
Maybe that's something that's confusing our, our poor narrator here that he can't, you know, he knows that uh, Michelle and Charles, Charles the Sorcerer are peasants, but can't understand how he could speak this Latin, this debased Latin, but it's medieval. It's, it's, it's medieval Latin, essentially. Um, so he begins to tell the story of Charles the Sorcier, this man he runs into, the stranger. Um, and he talks to about Charles in the third person, and this also confuses our rather dense narrator because, you know, he's talking about Charles the Sorcier in the third person, so it can't be him. Um, but anyways, Charles fled after the assassination of Michel Mauvais, but he returned eventually to seek his revenge, and he ends up dwelling in the castle in order to effect his revenge. So he basically just starts living in the basement of this castle in this in these catacombs sets up his lab there in order to affect his revenge and each member of the council line to make the curse true so the in a way the curse does have a naturalistic explanation it's simply this man literally murdering each of these people in this line now of course the fact that he's long lived has a supernatural element to it but the actual murders themselves aren't the curse was merely this guy you know, murdering them uh, when he could. And he get, he tells how he did it. You know, he like he shot an arrow, he drowned the guy, he poisoned one was a mysterious death. And he said, I, I just poisoned that guy or Charles just poisoned him. Um, now he speaks to Charles, as I said, in the third person, leaving our narrator to wonder who this stranger is, why he's fulfilling the curse. Um, and we're, you know, there's a bit here Lovecraft writes about how, you know, he knew, he already looked this up, that Charles Le Sorcier didn't have any children. There's no, that line died out. So that it's not like it's the descendants of Charles Le Sorcier fulfilling this curse. So why does this guy care? That's the question for our, our narrator has. But um, now the stranger even reminds him of Charles's search for the elixir of life. Um, now at this point, the stranger who's full of rage and hatred towards Antoine tries to attack him. Um, Antoine eventually throws his torch at the opponent. He misses. It strikes the back of the wall, but the torch does light up uh, the stranger's body on fire, uh, and Antoine faints. Another Lovecraftian uh, trope, fainting. Uh, he awakens sometimes later. Uh, you know, he pretty much assumes this man died because he's still alive. Um, but power of curiosity then leads him to ask who this man is and why he's carrying on the curse. Very much like the beast in the cave, where in the beast in the cave, when there was this fear, this terror, this desire to live, that he just runs away from the mystery to then eventually finds the, the guide. But once he's safe, once he has light, once he has weapons, he wants to go back and investigate. Right. Same thing here. Once he's secure, he thinks he's not going to be killed and he thinks the curse has been taken care of. He decides to, you know, seek out an answer. And this leads him to ask who this man is and why he's carrying on the curse. Thinking his opponent dead, he decides to search more of the catacombs. He sees the stranger with his eyes closed. He kind of thinks, oh, he's dead. He eventually finds an alchemist's laboratory with a supply of gold. This, of course, is a hint that the alchemist has mastered the transmutation of base metals and therefore perhaps also has mastered the elixir of life. And here he sees a door out to the woods. So there is a way in and out to this laboratory. So I don't know how much of time Charles Le Sorcier spends in this laboratory. I assume he has to go out for food and supplies and things like that. Maybe 
maybe he's the one who carries on this tradition among the peasants, right? Again, that's we can only kind of speculate here, but is there an ongoing relationship between Charles de Sorcier and the peasants? I, I think there's reason to believe there is, especially in the fact that the peasants seem to be much more aware of what's going on with this the Count's family than, than the Count himself. Now he goes back to investigate the body and he finds that this man, this stranger, is still alive. The man wakes up and still filled with rage, tries to have one last gasp, one last attack on Antoine, but it's pathetic and it fails. He simply doesn't have the energy. He's nearly dying. He shouts out some words in that same kind of vulgar Latin, you know, which suggests his loyalty to fulfilling the curse. Um, now, while nearly helpless, he can do nothing but shout out to Anton, and he finally confesses that he is Charles the Sorcier. So um, the reader already figured this out, I think. Now, um, it is interesting to take this story from the perspective of Charles. Here we have an educated peasant raised by an alchemist. Now, what did alchemy, what did magic provide to peasants in the Middle Ages? Their life was insecure and often perilous. They faced bad harvests, plagues, taxes, rents, feudal payments. Uh, sometimes they had to do labor service to feudal lords. They faced uh, armies marching through, taking their crops, conscription, you know, just bad weather. All these things were the struggles just to survive that peasants in pre-modern cultures faced. And it's true everywhere in the world. It's not just a European thing. This is just the life of peasants. As one historian or scholar described it, may have been James Scott, I don't know. Um, might have been someone else. But, you know, peasants are, are like standing on their tiptoes in water up to their neck, you know, hoping the tide's not going to come in. It's really that perilous everyday struggle for existence. Now, what is their security? Well, Christianity, perhaps, at least in Europe, you know, their security was religion. But I can imagine, I think Lovecraft can imagine, and I think there's probably reasons to think this is true. Many peasants would have turned to other types of magic besides Christianity for security, such as the occult, maybe even devil worship, certainly superstition, you know, whether it was the you know, the horseshoe or superstition about breaking a mirror, whatever it might be. Superstition, magic charms became a form of security for, for peasants. Magic, in short, became a way of coping with the randomness of life. And, and it gave poor people powers to affect revenge, to, you know, to get justice at the end, perhaps. Maybe justice is what they're looking for. Um, but certainly the occult existed as a lived tradition. I'm 100% sure that this is true, that it wasn't just like the witch trials. Yes, hundreds of thousands of women probably miss, uh, wrongly accused of being witches were murdered by the state, by religious authorities in early modern Europe. We know this. Does this mean that there wasn't witchcraft as a real living tradition in Europe? You know, I think there there was such a tradition, and I think Lovecraft really believed there was as well. Um, so, so perhaps even performing rituals, casting magic, this would have been seen by the educated elite or the clergy as devil worship. Perhaps this gave security 
uh, a sense of justice, a sense of kind of cosmic justice to the poor. Now, within this story, it is the peasants who seem to remember the curse against their feudal overlords. Now, maybe this is from tradition. Maybe it's Charles Le Sorcier carrying on uh, this story. But the actual victims of the curse are those who forget. They fail to pass on the knowledge, forcing Antoine to see the truth, seek out the truth for himself. My point here is that, at least as far as Lovecraft stories are concerned, but I think also extendable to real life, there is power in the marginalized, exemplified by their use of magic, magic that is unknowable to those in a position of authority. In this way, the alchemist is not just a man seeking revenge on a family that wronged him, but a personification of the collective rage and power of the working people in society who do not forget and are capable of delivering justice if necessary. And this is the heart of Lovecraft's fear of the masses that he uh, exemplifies in so many of his stories, whether it's the horror of Red Hook, Call of Cthulhu, or on and on. Um, so that is, I think, the power of this story, The Alchemist. So um, that's my thoughts on it. Um, I would like to know what you think about The Alchemist. Please leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. In the next episode of the HP Lovecraft Book Club, I will be looking at The Tomb. The Tomb is next. So uh, another story that lets us talk about um, kind of occult traditions and, and kind of weird rituals and things. Um, so I'm looking forward to, to that. So see you then. Thanks for listening.